The sinfulness of people is the proof of God. That sounds very counterintuitive, but the message of Isaiah contains that very thought. That the sinfulness of people is the proof of God Himself. That God proves that He is God because of His amazing grace towards sinners. That grace was not an afterthought in the mind of God. That grace was not a plan B that suddenly people sinned and now He decided He's going to have to do something to be gracious What sets God apart is the amazing grace that He shows. The expectation of humans toward a God would be that God would ferociously judge transgressors. It is really, I think, one of the arrows of atheism is to look at evil in the world and to say, well, if there is a God, how can it be possible that we see all these things going on around us? And historically, false gods are carrying that very attitude from the angry volcano god that wipes out the inhabitants of the island to the angry rain god that withholds the rain because the people in the land are not doing as that god pleased. That is the conjuring of the mind of humans to create a god who ferociously and viciously attack the creation when they do not do as That God desires. But what makes our God different, what makes Him the true and living God, and what proves Him to be God, is rather than immediately destroying the disobedient, God welcomes the disobedient into a relationship with Him. And Isaiah 48 is that picture. Isaiah 48 is a shocking picture of the grace of God and the things that God allows and the things that God will do to be able to draw His people back to Him. Even the writer of Hebrews spoke of a powerful image in Hebrews 4 and verse 16 when he said that the very throne of God that we are approaching is the throne of grace. That we are able to approach the throne of grace, not the throne of vindictive wrath, but that there is a throne of grace that we are able to approach and God then sets himself different because I don't believe any human would have conjured a God to be like that. All false gods that have conjured up by humans immediately attack and destroy those who disobey. And the true and living God bestows grace. Unfortunately, I think what we see, though, is though God desires people to follow and obey Him, and this grace is poured out, what we see is His people do not respond the way that they're supposed to. We're going to notice in the first eight verses of Isaiah 48 that this is exactly the message that God gives. As He describes now the stubbornness of His people after God has walked with them, revealed Himself to them, given them His very words, what have the people of God done? Notice what He says, Isaiah 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Israel, who are called by the name of Israel. 
excuse me, let's start that again. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard now see all this and will you not declare it from this time forth? I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from your birth you were called a rebel. That's how God begins. He basically begins by saying, you are stubborn. You are simply stubborn. And notice the description of the stubbornness is in the first two verses. He says, you claim to be the people of God. You claim it by name. You say that you are Israel and you call yourself by the city, the holy city, Jerusalem. You call yourself after God and you confess the God of Israel, as verse one says. And so he points out and says, you say all the right things. But verse one makes it very clear, though they swear by the name of the Lord, call themselves the people of God. They call themselves Israel and they confess him. Verse one says it's not in truth. It's not in truth. It's not in righteousness. It's not for real. Though you say all the right things and you claim to put your hope in God and you claim to confess the Lord as your God, it's not in truth. And I find the words of verse two then chilling because he says, basically, you claim to put your rest in God. Notice the ESV says you and stay themselves on the God of Israel, that they think that they are leaning on God. They, if you would ask them, would say, we believe in God and we rely upon him. We are staying on him. We are resting on him. We lean on the Lord and confess his name and we are truly followers of God. And God just says, no, you're not. You claim it all you want to. You can claim to be the people of God all you like. You can claim to have faith. You can seem to confess my name. But it's not in truth. It's not in righteousness. It is not for real. Verse 4, he describes it and just says, you're stubborn. You're stubborn. Your forehead is like metal. 
You refuse to hear what I have to say. You refuse to turn. You refuse to truly place your life in my hands. And I know we've been in Isaiah for a fairly long time, but I hope you can kind of pull yourself back out and just think about how true that message is. From the very early chapters, how Isaiah is picturing a scene of you will not trust me. You do not hope in me. You do not rely upon me. You do not believe in me. And notice if you remember what it was that was back with Assyria. And with Assyria, it says you were relying upon some other nation to save you. You think Egypt is going to help you? You think this foreign nation is going to save you? And Assyria is then going to destroy you because of that. And so from the very beginning of Isaiah's message, here it is again, 48 chapters later, still the proclamation. You aren't trusting in me, even though you claim to. And I hope that it will cause us to take a step back and think about that declaration by God. Because it is really easy to say, well, we believe in God. We are Christians. We call ourselves by that name. And here we are and we're going to a place that believes in God. And so here we are as worshipers of God. We are Christians and we belong and we confess. And yes, we rely upon Him. Surely we have the faith that God is looking for. And I want us just to consider these people thought the same thing. They thought the very same thing. And God just says, no, you don't. I know you think it, but no, you don't. And I think it's important for us to examine ourselves and ask, do we truly long for Him? Because that is the place that we can consider our faith. If we really have the faith that God wants us to have, and He really is our confession, and we really do rely upon Him at all times for all things, in all circumstances, then are we really longing for Him? Do we long to obey Him? Do we desire to learn of Him? These are good indicators to determine if we are just saying it or if it's for real. Because what He tells them is, you don't long after Me. That's what He's observing with them, like in verse 4. You're obstinate. Your neck is like iron sinews. Your your foreheads of brass. Look at verse 8. I knew you would deal treacherously. I knew before you were born you were going to be a bunch of rebels. True faith does not rebel against God and does not deal treacherously with God. And so it reminds us then of the problem of believing we have a relationship when we really don't and that God knows the heart. In fact, in verses 5 through 8, he is observing something by saying that one of the issues or symptoms that shows this stubbornness and lack of faith is that they are failing to attribute these good things and what God had done for them, they failed to attribute it to God. And notice that he says there in verse 5, he says, the reason I have come to you with prophecy is because I know what you're going to do. Salvation is going to come from the Babylonians and you're going to be delivered by Cyrus. And I know what you're going to do. You're going to say your idols did it. And so I'm telling you all of this about Cyrus back in chapter 44 and 45 about this great deliverance because I know you're stubborn. And as soon as these good things happen and the tide change, you're going to think it was by your hand. 
And you're not going to think it's by God. And so God says, I'm going to tell you all this ahead of time. That's what verse five, verse six, verse seven, verse eight, verse seven, verse eight. That's all he's saying is I'm giving it to you ahead of time. Things you've never heard, things you can't even conjure up. I want you to know it ahead of time so that you will attribute these things to God and God alone. And that is a great indicator of faith is that the things that we see in our lives, we attribute them to God. That we do not look at our own hand and go, well, I am awesome. You know, I just make such fantastic decisions. And that's why everything goes so well for me. Uh, we, we can do that. Look at me with all of my prosperity. It was clearly me. Look at me with my health. It's clearly me. We will go through all of the things of life and begin to say, well, it's by my hand. Which was the very thing God warned Israel not to do commanded them directly. You're going to go into that land and you're going to say your wealth was by your hand and your prosperity is by your doing and it was by your power that you drove them out. He said that is false. And we have to remind ourselves we sit in the hands of God and that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift as James would write. And that we must attribute these things to God, that we are thankful to God, because you consider what happens when we rely upon ourselves and say that these things come from our own hand. You know, the first thing to go is thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving to God flees. And we've studied Romans one when thanksgiving to God goes honor and glory to God then goes next. And then lawlessness after lawlessness begins. And so the warning is there. Recognize that God is doing these things. And he says, I knew you would do this. That's what I think is so amazing about this initial declaration is that verse eight, he says, and I knew it before you were even born, before Israel even came into existence. God says, I know exactly what you were going to do. You want to know why that he knew not only because he's God, but because humans are humans. And not only is God able to know all things, but I only need to know one human to know this is how it goes. We're all the same. We're all disobedient. We're all transgressors. None is righteous. We're all violators. And the question that I think comes out of those first eight verses then is, so what's what's God going to do? Here is God saying, I'm sending you away to captivity because of your sins. And I'm going to deliver you because of them. And I'm telling you this ahead of time because I know that you're so stubborn. And so how will God deal with these people? What will God do for them? And I think it is so amazing to look at what God says he's going to do. Look at verse 9. We'll read the next three verses. Verses 9, 10, and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut, may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God comes in and answers the question, what is God going to do? And notice what God says in verse 9. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. And in our journey of Isaiah, I find that statement even more astounding again, because there's been absolutely nothing that Israel has done to deserve God deferring his anger. 
There's just nothing. Not only in the history of Israel, but with even within this generation who have been given chance after chance. And it's a time of prophets, Isaiah and Hosea and Micah are preaching to the people, preaching to the people. And they're not turning. They're not responding. Remember how Isaiah 6 began? Remember Isaiah, when here am I, send me after that throne room scene. And God says, you go tell them. And here's what's going to happen. They're not going to listen. Seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. God already knows what they're going to do with the message. And here God comes in and says, so here's what I'm going to do about that. And we would expect God to say, all right, I gave you every chance and I knew you were going to do this. And I sent on my prophets. And so your wrath is deserved. But God says, I defer my anger. Instead, he tells them in verse 10, I'm going to refine you instead. I'm not going to cut you off. I'm going to send you into purification. And so God does something different than any of the false gods and false idols. God shows grace and he describes here a limited punishment to be able to refine them. I'm going to put you through suffering. I'm going to put you through affliction. I'm going to send you into the Babylonian captivity with a purpose of refining. I want to put you through the fire so that you will be the people that you are supposed to be. But amazingly, God says, I'm not going to fully punish you. For God has every right to do that. God could surely say, this is the end. I gave you chance after chance after chance. And yet how often God says, what I want to do is I want to refine you so that you can come and be with me. So that we can be in relationship together, that we can be together again. And so though the full wrath of God is deserved, God says, verse 9, I defer my anger for my own praise, for my own namesake, I restrain it. And so that you will not be cut off. That is a a beautiful picture because I think that really should change how we view the world. I think it changes really a lot in our concepts and in our thinking about what we see in this world. What Isaiah, I think, tells them and teaches us about God is that when we look around at this world and we see all the wickedness and we see all the evil and we see all the terrible things that go on, that we're supposed to see the glory of God. Now that doesn't jive in our minds in a straightforward way. But the reason why you see the glory of God is because God wants to bring everybody to him. What is on display in all that we see in the world is the long suffering of God, the patience of God. And to think of like what Second Peter 3, 9 says, a, a verse that we easily blow over. Well, he's long suffering, doesn't want any to, to perish. Think about the reality of what that looks like right here. Is he tells them, rather than wiping you out, even though you're rebels and even though you are stubborn and even though I know you're not changing, 
I don't want to see you perish. And so I'm going to refine you. I'm going to limit the suffering. I'm going to limit what you are going through so that you can become what I want you to be. And I think that's an amazing picture. Because God has shown that he doesn't have to operate that way. Many of us know those Old Testament stories and New Testament stories well. We can quickly refer to Ananias and Sapphira and Nadab and Abihu. And nobody reads those and goes, well, that's not fair. That's very fair. That's exactly what the penalty for sin should be. Total defiance is seen in those stories. And yet God does not operate that way. Instead, he allows us to continue to live with all of this evil and all of this wickedness. And it shows the glory of God. That God is patient and wants people to turn. And I hope that it helps us consider a whole new perspective. As I've mentioned many times, it's so easy to want to strike down the evildoer on the outside. But don't forget where the evildoer starts here. And we are grateful for the patience of God. And that is God's glory on display as another person submits the knee to Christ. And he's using that picture here and saying, I will not wipe you out. I'm going to display my glory yet again. Verse 11, my glory, I will not give to another. I'm not going to let my name be profaned. I'm going to continue to show that glory through patience. But that has a consequence. Is that it is allowing people to choose to not follow God. I think then that helps as well because I think it is a place that we can easily fail in the moments of suffering and difficulty and crisis is that we recognize when we read Job and we see like in first Peter one and verse seven, that God does have limits on Satan and God is using these things to refine us for his glory. You see that in the book of Job very clearly. You see Peter say that specifically, that this testing you are going through is the refining of your faith, testing of that faith so that it can be made what it needs to be. It is a a beautiful picture then because we need that. As much as I hate trials and I hate difficulties... And I would like for everything to be sunshine, rainbows, skipping along with the music and the birds singing. And there's never a cloud in the sky and all is happy and joy. And we could all hold hands together around the world and all drink a Coke and it would just be great. We need all of this. That's what God is saying. This is how God refines is these difficulties are allowed for a refining to occur. A testing of faith to push out the impurities that are within us, most notably to Isaiah 48, to push out that stubbornness that we have so that we will stop being rebels before him. That God continues to show patience, 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 so that we will open our eyes and go, he is a glorious and gracious God. And I have to stop being stubborn because he's given me 400 million billion chances. What an amazing God. 
which means that this becomes very difficult, then rather than giving up on God when we go through difficulties, rather than quitting on God when things get tough, rather than throwing in the towel and questioning where God is, when suffering strikes, we need to recognize that it is actually a blessing. Another opportunity for us to draw closer to God. Another opportunity for refinement, purification to take place. It is another opportunity for God's glory to be put on display in our lives so that we are able to become more like Him and point more to the glory of God. That all sounds good in theory, very hard in practice. And think about the message and context of what this means in this They're going to lose their city. They're going to lose their nation. They're going to be destroyed. And God says, but I'm allowing this because there needs to be refining. That's a powerful message to us about the grace of God that we need refining and that we can then be prepared to deal with suffering, to approach trials, to handle difficulties, knowing that this is an opportunity to draw closer to God. This is an opportunity for faith to be refined even further, for us to get more of that stubbornness and rebellion out of us, to see it as an opportunity. And I really do believe that was why James could begin that book, count it all joy. And man, you read that and go, are you kidding me? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials and you go, no way. But he's saying, see the opportunity. This is necessary. Every single one of us needs this kind of difficulty. Painful as it is. But it refines us. It changes us. It reforms us. It draws us closer to God. Don't let it be something that turns you away from God, but see it as a blessing that that you and I need, that God is using to bring more to Him. Now, how will God then make his final appeal? Verses 12 through 22 is now his appeal. How can we do that? How can we trust him and believe in that in the middle of all that difficulty when we're surrounded by suffering and the waves of trial are just pounding over our heads? Listen to what he says in Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called... I am he, I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me in his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river 
and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord for the wicked. Quite a sharp ending. (laughs) A final appeal that God makes. And chapter 49 really moves right into that. But we'll have to leave chapter 49. A final appeal. And notice he says, okay, now everybody just listen up. That's verse 12. Now listen to me. He does it again in verse 14. Everybody assemble and listen to me. I've got something to tell you. And what he says is, you trust in his sovereignty. Did you see that there in verse 12? I am he. I am the first and the last. Okay, you know who I am. Yep, we got it. All right. First and the last. You're the eternal one. You're the only one. Verse 13, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. My hand spread out the heavens. Here's God saying, I am the creator. I spread out the heavens. I accomplished all of these things. In verse 13, what a powerful thought. When I called them, they stand forth together. God says, I'm stretching out the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth. And I just call them out. They stand. Hello. Hello, earth. Hello, heavens. Standing in attention. The power of the Creator God. And so what He's accomplishing here is saying, if I am that, if I am the true and living God in whom you confess, in whom you make your claim that you are my people and you rely upon me, is there anything that God cannot accomplish? I make the heavens stand. I lay the foundations of the earth. I am from the beginning and the end. And so he says, do you think that there's something I cannot do? Is there something that is outside the reach of God that cannot be accomplished? Is there something that we could ask of him that he will not or cannot do? He's saying, you can trust in me. I'm the almighty God. And then he puts that to why that would be so relevant for them. In verses 14 through 16, he basically speaks of a servant who's going to deliver. He seems to clearly be referring to Cyrus yet again. I am going to send my servant. He's going to be against the Babylonians. He's going to perform my purpose. He's going to prosper in the way that I have sent him. I have anointed him with my spirit. He is going to be the one to save you. And so don't think that that cannot happen. God can deliver in even the most hopeless of times like it would look like when the people of Israel are sitting over there in Babylonian captivity. And it looked like there was no hope for them. The city is destroyed. The temple is gone. The nation is eradicated. And God says, don't think I can't deliver. I said it. It will be accomplished. I will do it. And then he tacks on even more beautiful words. Verse 17, I'm the Lord your God, and I'm going to teach you. You're going to come out from Babylon, and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you in the way you ought to go. I'm going to give you the directions you need. I'm going to give you the paths you need to go. I will teach you. 
But after he says that, you, you have to love the step back that he takes in verses 18 through 21 because he steps back and says, if you would have just listened, you wouldn't have had to have lost all the blessings that have been lost. He speaks primarily of all those promises that were given to Abraham, doesn't he? You see that picture there, particularly in verse 19. Your offspring would have been like the sand of the sea. Your descendants like its grains. That's the promise given to Abraham. Here he is saying, you, know, you are Israel. This is what I had promised to Abraham. And your descendants would have been like the sand of the sea. Verse 18, you would have had peace like a river. That's what God promised. He told Israel, if you would obey, nobody's going to come against you. They wouldn't have needed a standing army. Nobody would have touched him. He says, you would have had peace like a river. Your righteousness would have flowed like the rivers. And you would have been as numerous as the sands of the sea. And end of verse 19, your name would never be cut off. Nobody was going to touch you. But instead, what happens is sin causes the loss of blessings. And he tells them that. You had everything right in front of your hands, right there for in your grasp. But your rebellion caused the loss of those blessings. Your rebellion has separated you from God and to Babylon they would go. And that's when then he picks that up and just says in verses 20 and 21, though, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to buy you back again. Just like he did in Egypt. You see that picture in verse 21? You didn't thirst when you went through the deserts and the waters coming out of the rock. He is thinking of the Exodus. He is thinking of that Egyptian Exodus and saying, remember how I was with you and I redeemed you and you were mine and I brought you and I protected you and delivered you. That's going to happen again. But then I think it is so interesting as Isaiah has done many times. There's an echo that is sitting in this text. Chapter 7 was a long time ago when we saw one of those strong echoes. Where we saw this picture of a young maiden who's going to give a child, bear a child, call the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this was going to be a sign in the days of Ahaz that God was with them. But we know that there was a greater echo as Matthew would come along and write and say, no, the virgin will conceive. There's going to be a miracle that's going to take place. There's a greater fulfillment that would arise out of that prophecy, that it would be bigger and better than what was stated originally to that audience in the days of Isaiah. And when you read this, you see so much of the similar things that there's going to be a greater servant to arise. This is why chapter 49 is a terrible break. The next paragraph, he now speaks of his greater servant who's going to come and he's going to truly redeem the people. And here is this transition echo as he speaks of Cyrus now who's going to redeem them from Babylon. But there is something bigger that is going to happen. And you move through those texts and you hear that picture of I'm going to send my servant and it's going to be the Lord and this greater servant, he's going to teach you in the way that you should go. 
And He's going to show you how you ought to live. And He's going to reverse the condition of what was lost before. Like in verse 18, peace is now going to come back through this greater servant. Righteousness is going to return. And the offspring are now going to be like the sands of the sea again. That God will redeem His people. There is going to be a new exodus that comes when the greater servant, when the Messiah Jesus the Christ arrives. There's an echoing here of that wonderful picture. And so you see then Isaiah just giving a wonderful image of reversing all the curses and loss of blessings when he arrives. And that's why what seem to be subtle statements in the New Testament are echoing so strongly, not only off of what the prophets were saying would come, But the weightiness of what Israel lost, I've tried to bring that up many times in our Holy Spirit studies, that the concept of restoring the kingdom of God and restoring the covenant of God to his people and restoring those blessings, the prophets are picturing this loss You would have had peace if you would have stayed with me. You would have had righteousness flowing. You would have been my people and there would have been no harm to you. But then God comes along and says, I'll be gracious and I'll send the deliverer you need. Here they needed the deliverer of Cyrus, who's going to set them free from Babylonian slavery and a greater deliverer would rise up. That God himself would send, that God would anoint like verse 16 pictures, that here is going to be my servant. And now we can be what was lost before. Think about the weight of what John said. I, I felt so many echoes out of John's gospel in studying this chapter, but you have to love what he says there in John 1 and you hear these words of we're rebels and we're sinners. He says it there in John 1 11. In speaking of Christ, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then to go on and say, but to all who did receive him, after saying they didn't receive him, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, this true faith that Isaiah is saying his people have, the most staggering words. He gave the right to become children of God to those who would put their faith in him and not just say it by a name and not just fakely claim it to not just merely make a false confession, but truly rely on God to put their lives in his hands. He says to those who do that, to those who truly believe, he gave the right to become the children of God, to be the offspring that God had promised from the very beginning back in the days of Abraham, a nation that would belong to God, that would be his people. The same thing appears in the book of Revelation and speaking about this wonderful reversal. And sometimes we read the endings to the seven churches of Asia and go, all right. But, but what he says of those Christians is staggering fulfillments of what was lost when Israel was to be the people of God. Like in Revelation 3.12, when he says, The one who conquers, 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I mean, that's just, what a thought. Very presence of God. Nothing to separate. With God eternally. No loss of relationship. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Here Isaiah says they claim city, they claim God, they claim Israel. And here Christ reverses it and says, now those who come to me, and those who believe in me, I will be their deliverer. They will belong to God. They will wear my name. They will now have the blessings of being the new Israel, the new people of God. And so we see this picture of Christ redeeming Christ with the Exodus, like in Colossians chapter one and verse 13, who has moved us from sin into the, transferred us into the realm of light. Isaiah was looking forward to a glorious day where there would be the true people of God who would follow him and listen to him, who would desire to hear his words and obey. Let's just end real quick on verse 22. But there is no peace for the wicked. Just a reminder after all of that hope, And all of that grace and all of that patience that we see God just bestowing and giving. Just a final reminder. There's no peace for the wicked. There is a time coming. And do not presume upon the graciousness of God that there will not be a moment that God will deal with all the evil and all the wickedness. But for the time being, it is a display of the glory of God the patience of God and the love of God. But one day, no peace. The decision is ours. Will we come to the grace and loving kindness of God? Will we let our hearts be refined by the things that we endure, by the suffering and challenges and difficulties so that we can become what God is refining us to be? Will we allow Him to work in our lives and mold us and change us? May we not resist the Word of God and may we not resist what God can do through the things of this world. It's so easy to be like these people and be stubborn against the ways of God. God says, I'm trying to work in your life. I'm trying to change you to be what you need to be. Will you let Him do His work? Will you become what God wants you to be? For there is no hope for the wicked. As we sing this song, we're inviting you to find your hope in Christ, to turn away from your sins. In confessing Jesus as the Son of God, that's not just saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is full of faith, declaring that you are putting your life in the hands of God and not in yourself any longer. Now God will rule your life completely. Your decisions are now His decisions, and He is your Master. And that is all seen through the waters of baptism as your sins are washed away. You come up in a new life, a new life that follows Christ and no longer self. You ready for the glorious hope? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?